and there's already a bit yellow blood in my in my veins. Already had a crazy 80 months here, but it just keeps on uh, keeps on going. Welcome to All in Yellow, the official Norwich City podcast. Tukey! Sensational! Who else? Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the All in Yellow podcast. Today we're in the presence of a sports broadcasting legend. He has one of the most recognisable voices in football and has commentated on a number of huge Norwich City games during his career. It's commentator Clive Tilsley. Clive's voice is so distinctive and he's commentated on so many iconic football matches over the years. I'm really looking forward to hearing some of his untold stories and also his perception of Norwich City and how that's changed over the years. But before we get started, make sure you subscribe to the All In Yellow podcast as we aim to bring the best Norwich City insight out there. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, just search All In Yellow, and we're also on the Norwich City YouTube channel if you prefer your podcasts in visual form. So without further ado, here's the latest episode of All In Yellow with Clive Tilton. Clive, great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us on All in Yellow. Now, I've seen a few pictures during the round of your commentary charts on social media recently, and I hear that they were very well received by Daniel Farker and Stuart Webber. How did that come about? Well, the um, the idea um, arose in the very first lockdown in the spring of last year, and um, for every game that I've ever commentated on. And I started in the late 17th century, as you'll be aware. Um, I prepared a chart uh, with all my research notes on. And it, they're, they're an interesting memento of a football match. And um, Stradic Ferguson actually had the, the commentary charts for the two Champions League victories that he enjoyed with Manchester United framed on his office ward in, uh, uh, at Carrington. And um, kind of from that idea and, uh, and, and during lockdown, when I was running a little quiz um, on a daily basis, covering up a name on the chart, people started to ask about them. Can we buy them? And a friend of mine, who you're probably aware of, Chris Stark, um, who's on the Peter Crouch podcast and on Radio One most mornings, um, he said, yeah, you've got to set up a business. And, it, and he gave me the kick up the backside and we, we went in together. We bought 12 frames to start with, to see if anybody really wanted them. And um, I hate to tell you how many we've sold. <laughs> but, but, but as far as City are concerned, the, the interesting thing is that we started out with games that I had commentated on. They weren't the original commentary charts because they kind of spread over four or five sheets when I'm doing a big game. So I condensed them all onto one presentable chart, something just hanging in the downstairs loo with a man or woman cave or whatever you've got, bar. And um, uh, people started to ask, well, you know, where's the Norwich City chart? Where's the Nottingham Forest? Well, I didn't commentate. It doesn't matter. You can still make a chart. So, yeah, last, a couple of weeks ago, um, we published a chart from the famous night in Munich. And um, Gunny's got one and Mark Bowen's got one and Chris Sutton's got one and they love them. So, um, yeah, they're available if, if people want to buy them. Um, here's the plug, commentarycharts.com. But they're, um, they're an interesting kind of, memento in so much they don't actually tell you what happened they are a screen grab of kickoff they are, all the players are there and all the information all the background information to the game and you add your memories so if you're in Munich great if you're watching at home on tv you kind of remember who you were watching with and um so you add your your personal memory to this um this sort of outline this almost sort of center page of the pro back page of the program which um which gives you the two lineups and all the background to the game well, I'll be heading straight to that website, Clive. I, I can guarantee that. You don't that. look old enough. 
<laughs> no, I, I am, believe me. 28 years ago, crikey. I'll, I'll, I'll be heading to that website. But uh, yeah, it's kind of a bit of an eye-opener for the rest of us of just how much work you guys put in behind the scenes in the lead up to a game and especially a big game. You don't just rock up with a microphone and, and say what you see. You know in depth about all of the players and it take, must take a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, I could bore you for years um, with my sort of theories on, on commentary, on communication, on broadcasting, on, um, you know, the importance of a, of a news bulletin, particularly at the moment, and, and the accuracy of a news bulletin, the research that needs to go into it, the thought that the presenter the responsibility that goes with actually communicating the news. And, um, you know, football isn't as important as a pandemic or a war or anything, but in a weird sort of way, people get as emotionally invested in in, in the course of a, a 90 minute live football match as they do anything else that comes on their television or their tablet or any whatever kind of screen they're using. Um, I always joke that, um, you know, during the, if, if I'm lucky enough to commentate on a a big England game during a, a tournament and the audience is 25 million. I'm talking to 25 million deranged people. Um, they're not deranged, but they are for the 90 minutes of the game because the, the, so much of their emotion um, is, is wrapped up in, in the playing and the outcome of that football match. And of course, if you say anything which they would quibble with, then uh, they, they're straight to Twitter to let you know about it. But um the, the information is important because I need to know more about that game than anybody else who's turning on at the start. But I repeat, um, you know, my those of my brethren who bore, bore people with stats just because they've done the research and you're going to hear it, whether it's relevant to the action. Even a lot of the graphics that appear on screen, I think now are just kind of window dressing, really. I think it's almost kind of a style of fad for statistics. And I'm not anti-statistics as long as they amplify as long as they you know add something to what we can already see with with our own two eyes and so yeah the information is important but as I say it's just there as a comfort blanket to give me confidence rather than a script it, it is an unscripted performance of commentary so you can only prepare so much yeah it really is a performance and you've seen it all you've said it all in football but where did your love of the beautiful game first come from and when did it rise um well, here's another plug. I've got a book out in, in May. I know. It's kind of uh, semi-biographical. It's not, it's not, it's, it doesn't chart my career chronologically at, at all. It's more to do with the characters and the people. Uh, but I, I've, I'm trying to think if there's Norwich City. There is actually one Norwich City story in it. But um, uh, I went, came home from the nursing home uh, in my mum's arms uh, and into a house where we lived next door to the manager of my local football club. My uncle David was the manager of Bury Football Club uh, and next door neighbour. And I, as I grew up, played out with his, his son, who's a little older than I am. But, we, you know, he was my first playmate. Um, so I actually kind of grew up inside track. You know, when I went to see a game uh, and we could walk to Gig Lane to, to Bury, you know, sadly Bury and are no more as, as a football league club. But we could walk to Gig Lane from our house. Um, but I was inside track, you know, I was in the dressing room corridor. I was, I was around the players. I, I could go up and watch them train. So, and I think you guys would appreciate this because, you know, you are fans, but you've been fans from the outside. Once you get inside, it's a different, you have a different relationship with your team and particularly with the people in that team. And, um, you know, guys like um, Jamal Lewis and Ben Godfrey are now opposing players 
but you'll have a real affection for them. You, you'll really be wanting them to do well, because I guess you've got to know them. You, you formed not only a friendship with them, you've maybe got to know their partner or, you know, they've got children or their father or whatever. And so when I get asked today, who do I support? I support my mates. You know, my, my, I really don't have a team, um, but my affections go with people. I mean, I, like Martin O'Neill was my very first friend in football and he's still one of my best friends. I spoke to Martin yesterday, uh, Brian Gunn, one of my best friends. And, and nearly every football club that I, that I would visit or commentate on, there will have been really, really close friends who've got very close associations uh, with that football club. And, um, and so that's, it, it, it is different from the inside. And I was kind of on the inside from day one. Sorry, do you think that's changed much, Clive? In that I know, like when you when you used to travel with Liverpool, when you worked in Liverpool at uh, the start of your career, you used to travel with the team on the bus. I mean, does that happen so much now? It probably doesn't, I guess. The biggest single change in my career is the distance that's grown between football and its media, without any question at all. And it's a shame because it's it has uh, increased the distance between football and its support. You know, what are we as journalists, as, um, you know, if you're working for the football club or if you're just visiting the football club, working for a radio station or a TV company or a newspaper, you are the conductor. You, you are the conductor of information from the people who create the news to the people for whom that news is most important. So that connection is really, really important. And the nature of the 21st century game is... you. With the greatest world in the world, you're not going to bump into Daniel in Sainsbury's anymore. It, it just, it, you know, once upon a time, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe back in Dave Stringer's time, Dave maybe still went to Sainsbury's. The, the modern manager, the modern footballer, they can't afford to go out there and just mingle because we are in this kind of selfie age. We're in this, this kind of strange relationship that's built up between the performers and, and the spectators. And the distance between them has grown. And because there's very little trust between the people who should be passing on the information, the people in the middle, us, the media, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to divorce myself from newspapers or anything, we're all part of the same animal, um, then the relationship has changed. And as you say, the first three, four years that I worked for Radio City in Liverpool, which is one of two local radio stations on Merseyside, there's a BBC station too, both the Liverpool Echo and the Daily Post, the Liverpool Daily Post, which was the local newspaper, there would be a representative from each of those four media traveling with the team, with the best team in the whole world at that time, sitting on a bus with Kenny Dalglish, Graham Souness, Alan Hansen, traveling on a Friday from Anfield at lunchtime, staying in the hotel where we'd stay at, is it Dunstan Hall where used to stay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's where we used to stay. And, um, uh, and then travel, you know, into the, the ground with the team, travel away from them. Liverpool always just had fish and chips on the way home. The driver always had to source a local fish and chip shop. And the best football team in the world used to pull up outside the fish and chip shop at half past five. And, and 30 lots of fish and chips would be carted onto the coach with premium strength lager waiting. I mean, you know, these, <laughs> these fantastic athletes, the best players in the world, you see fish and chips, stodge, uh, washed down with premium strength lager all the way back to Merseyside and they'd probably get in their cars and drive home <laughs> that was that was 1979 not 2021 <laughs> do you miss that Clive is that is that a football that it was a different time but was that a nicer time for football 
No, I, well, uh, nicer. Uh, ni define nicer. <laughs> I don't think football was better then. I, I, I truly believe, obviously, I've got a few miles on the clock now, but I, I believe that any sport that you can measure, um, you know, the high jump, the 100 metres, anything that, you, that we can measure over the course of history has got better, has got faster, has got more competitive. And, um, and so I, 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 I do genuinely believe that football is of a better standard now than it was, um, you know, in the era that we were talking about, era, for instance, when City were absolutely regular, you know, fixtures in the, in the top division for, for a spell. But it's different, obviously. And um, it's different because of the, the quality of the playing surfaces. It's different because of the level now of refereeing protection for skilled players. It's different because of sports science. It's different because, because of that, that connection that we had with the fans. You know, the fans would turn a blind eye. You know, if you were out in, I don't, I don't know what the, uh, I genuinely don't know what the best night spot in Norwich was in 1981. I, can know, I know some people who will know. Um, but if the guys were in there on a Saturday night having a couple of beers, the, it wouldn't be in the paper the next day. Whilst, whilst watching some of the, the Clyde, Clive Tills, the great moments over the years and listening to those commentaries back. One thing I noticed was you're, and you talked about the emotion and your responsibility to convey that emotion. One of the things I felt like you were an absolute master of was just, or are, is describing what you see and then just taking a moment and letting that resonate. Is that something that you pick up as, as a commentator that you think about, or is that just, that's just instinct? Well, again, I, I, I'm afraid I, I really could bore you for hours about the techniques of commentary and everything. Um, and we are all a matter of opinion. Um, I mean, you know, before you kind of raise the subject, I, I had the ITV decided to replace me as the England commentator uh, last year, and I didn't see it coming, and I was upset. The, the good thing about their decision is that they replaced me with Sam Atterface, who has a different approach to commentary. He is different from me. I would be really, really hurt if somebody had come in and just done commentary in the same style and, and exactly the same manner. And just as there are um, 20 different ways to be a midfield player in the modern game, so there are 20 different ways to be a commentator. And, um, you know, your idea of, of uh, 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 Barry Davis once said to me, one man's commentator is one man's pain in the arse. He actually said the word arse, Barry Davis. <laughs> um, and it is true. You know, it's like newsreaders or weather presenters or it's like music, isn't it, really? Or actors. And, um, you know, my wife and I watched The Dig last night and we, we're just thoroughly bored by it. And yet there are people sort of thinking it's the greatest piece of television that's been made this year. So it is all... Um, we, we are all a matter of opinion. And, and my approach to it has always been that I think it's a piece of journalism. I think commentary is a piece of journalism. I think you are telling a story. Um, obviously, you're telling it in a different way when you're commentating on radio. Um, you're more important on radio because you're the eyes of, of, of the consumer, of um, viewer stroke listener. On television, uh, the most important person at the outside broadcast is what we call the match director, the person who decides which picture you're seeing. Of the 25 cameras inside Cowra Road, they, they choose which, which camera angle you can watch at any one time. And as a commentator, we should be following them. They, they dictate what you see. 
and we then should just amplify. We're the background music, really. We, we should be adding something, particularly the co-commentator should be, which will be somebody, he or she, who's been down there in the middle with the gladiators and has come back to tell the rest of us what it's like because we'll never go there. So that's that's their role. That's Dean Ashton's role to be sitting next to me at, um, at a talk sport game. Um, yeah, my job is, a, is a, it's a piece of journalism. It is um, to inform, uh, to to build drama without building melodrama. Um, great football doesn't need poetry. It doesn't. It, it, it's it, it's there to be seen. You just got to write. It's a bit like riding a roller coaster or something. You just go with it. Um, so you 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 commentators who start excited at the kickoff have no idea whether you've got nowhere to go. So you 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 build with the excitement as the game takes on. Uh, sometimes you'll see a rubbish game. Um, you can call it a rubbish game. Never, never sound like it's wasting your time because there are a million people watching you would swap places with you, you know, who are accountants and welders and, and, you know, whatever gardeners who would swap places. So never, never sound as if it's wasting your time because it's not That's your job. Be prepared, have information, which um, will add something um, to the, to the entertainment. Um, if you think you're funny, then have a go. Try and make people smile from time to time. But just recognize, I, I, I go back to it, the emotional investment that, that so many people are making in this broadcast, different from watching nearly anything they watch um, on, any, on any kind of sort of media platform. Uh, you know, it really would have to be a, a, a massive movie to get you as excited um, as a football match would do. So you've got to go with that, respect people's emotions and feelings, um, uh, respect that they're watching it from a slightly slanted um, green and yellow spectacle tinted um, point of view and, um, and, and you know ride the ride with them ride the ride for them if, if you're working on radio so yeah just just I, I you're gonna love it you're gonna love it and, and every game's gonna be special to you I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an opinion now which is a little would be a little controversial I haven't really said this publicly but um uh Darren Fletcher is a good friend of mine. Um, uh, he wouldn't mind me saying that I mentor him a little bit. He, 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 he asked me for advice. And, you know, he's the lead commentator on BT Sport, who are a major, uh, a major player now in television football. Darren commentated last week on games on Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday. He's going back to work Tuesday. I think he's doing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday again this week. He's doing Super Bowl on Saturday. Sunday is it Sunday. And I think that's too much. And I told him, I think every game has got to be special to us. And I mean, I'm a freelance broadcaster now. If somebody offers me four games in a week, I'll probably take them. Um, but everything else in my life will shut down because I need time to not just to prepare all those facts and figures and write out that neat chart, but to get my head around this game, like you've got your head around the game when Norwich City are playing and the game kicks off. I, I have got to care as much about that game as you do. Even if I've got Manchester City, Liverpool tomorrow, at that moment, that, that Norwich City against you know, Middlesbrough at the weekend has got to matter to me as much as it matters to you. Yeah, that's so good to hear your, your passion for that. And how do you kind of prepare for the games then? Is it a case of you locking yourself in the room? And how do you get into that headspace of really feeling passionate about what you're working on? Well, um, it's, just, it's just such a good job, Alice. I mean, um, I can work from home. 
I, I mean, I think the meeting's dead anyway, isn't it? I think we're all going to live on Zoom for the next for the rest of our lives. I, I think the meeting room is, uh, it, I mean, just going to grow spider webs. Um, so I, I do most of my preparation from home um, and either jump in my car and drive to Heathrow or jump in my car and drive to Norwich. Um, uh, yeah, the prep's there. I mean, prep's a lot easier in terms of information than it was 15 years ago because information is so accessible on all kinds of things. Um, I can watch just about any match that's played anywhere in the world. I mean, if, if, um, if you were playing in the Europa League in a couple of weeks' time against a team from North Macedonia, I would be able to find some tapes of that of that team. Just as the you know um, Daniel's scouting department would, you, you know, so you, you'd be able to clue yourself up. They've probably got a website, the club, so there's Google Translate. Um, so you, yeah, I mean, preparing is. I, I tell you what was an interesting exercise was doing the research for the for the Bayern Munich Norwich City chart because. I had to find um, kind of appearance and results grids for Bayern and for Norwich from that season um, to see, you know, who like Evan Okoko missed that game. Um, John Polston missed that game. Um, somebody else, there were some big names missed that game and, um, you, you know, through injuries. So I had to sort of find out who'd come into the team and who hadn't been playing regularly. Spencer Pryor played that, that night. I think it was his second or third game for Norwich City. Um, so, and that's the kind of information that I'm putting retrospectively on the chart as if this game were tomorrow. So that's what the commentary chart looks like that, that, that you know, Gunny's got framed now in his, in his downstairs loo. And so it, you can actually, the very fact that I can retrospectively do that kind of research on a game that was, what is it, 28 years ago? I mean, it's so easy to do it on a game that's happening next week. Uh, I'd look if I was doing um, a city game, I'd be on the Pinkin website all week. Um, I'd be on your, you know, club website all week. Um, if I've got a friend in the camp, a snout, Stuart might just help me a little bit with, um, you know, narrow it down to 20 players so that I'm not researching every 16. I mean, now there are nine subs in the Premier League. You know, you you've got to research more players than. Uh, uh, than ever. So, um, I mean, I did Newcastle at the weekend. Steve Bruce is a big friend. Stephen Clem is a big friend. You know, they they took me into their confidence and told me which 20 players were actually travelling from Newcastle, which eight or nine they were leaving behind. So I didn't have to do work on those guys. So, yeah, you build up. Uh, I keep my own records. Um, what have we got here that I can hold up to the camera? Uh, Norwich City, 92-93. There you go. So that was they were that that's a grid, an appearance grid. Can you see that? That was yep. I was actually keeping that back in 92-93. So I actually was able to refer to that. On the on the flip side, you'll see all the transfers, all the major activity. You'll see the goal scorers in the side. Down the side, you'll see the attendances, you'll see Norwich City's position in the table. So actually for the for the Munich chart, I had those to go to. So I've been keeping those charts, um, you know, since my career started. So in, in league with what's available online. And for all the information gathering, the prep, the research, obviously you still don't know what is going to happen on the pitch. And so you've got to react to what you see. And you've got to come up with the perfect line to summarise what you've seen. Are there any that you're superbly proud of delivering? And... Obviously, you know, you can't practice that, but do you have any kind of lined up thinking, 
uh, yeah, if that happens, I'll wheel that out. Yeah, I don't think that's cheating. Um, you know, people often ask me that. I, I guess, you know, you're talking about whatever. Say, say that the Champions League final, the, the one that Manchester United won in the last couple of minutes. Um, well, that is now 20, God, 22 years ago. Um, you can't, I, I can't prepare, I can't do any research in the days leading up to what if United play rubbish, losing 1-0, the treble's going, and he brings on a couple of substitutes and they both score. What am I going to say that? I mean, I, you know, I'd never go to bed. You'd have to research for every possible eventuality. But what you can do is, in addition to all the information, that, that and, and, and I'm glad that you, you've made this point about saying something which captures the moment. Football happens in moments. Football, we, we watch football for hours and hours and hours. Um, it's interesting when when the great pundits and and they are really outstanding pundits, you know, the, the Gary Neves and Jamie Carragher and stuff, analyze a game. They analyze it from the last whistle back to the first whistle. It's not played that way. It's played, it's played from the first to the last. And if you score in the first minute, everything else, the, the next 89 minutes happen completely differently. People react differently. Peter Schmeichel doesn't come forward for that corner that Manchester United won if they're winning 2-0. You, you can't go back and say, oh, 25th minute, you know, the fullback went to sleep, that's cost them the game. No, 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 that, that's, it might have cost them a goal, but it hasn't cost them the game. So when those moments happen, you've got to try to, again, editorialise. And if by the end of the game, my conclusions are something similar to what a great writer like, I don't know, Paul Hayward or Danny Taylor writes in their intro on that match in the, you know, the newspaper or the online edition of the paper that, that, that the following day, then I've done my job. If I'm commentating on a Champions League final, I will have a sheet of paper which has got PSG win, Bayern Munich win and information. It's not, not clever lines or anything because that they're, they're produced by the story. But, um, you know, Paris Saint-Germain, first Champions League win, however many quarterfinals, club only founded in so-and-so. So something which actually starts to tell the narrative of what this story means to them. Stuff that you can use at the final whistle and over the trophy presentation, but actually fulfills the purpose that you're talking about. You know, information which captures the story. And, I mean, I, I commentated, I was at Carrow Road last season when he beat City, Manchester City. Manchester City should have won that game. They had more than enough of that game to win it. But there was something happening in, in, in the course of that match. And it wasn't, I'm not talking about luck. I'm just talking about a team newly promoted, which had had a decent start to the season, playing against the might of the reigning champions. But there was just a sense inside the stadium. And obviously it's a stadium full of people, which helps, which starts to communicate. There's an electricity flying around. And the players actually started to believe do you know what? They're quite vulnerable here. If we just have a bit of a go, if we defend, if our lives depend on it, and take make the most of the opportunities that we get to counter and get our noses in front, which they did, and then a bit further in front, which they did, then th that's a develop. You can't prepare. For, you can't prepare for that, Daniel. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing that I could have done in the days leading up to that game to prepare for what happened that day. It, it was difficult enough to explain when you got to the end. Um, 
but you did get a sense of it. And Dino was alongside me that day. I was commentating on for, for TalkSport. And obviously he had a bit of a vested interest in, in City winning and uh, in Norwich City winning. And um, uh, yeah, But it was something you felt as the game went on. Do you know what? We might just win this. And... Um, and so you ride that, you ride that. It's a, it's a different ride to the one I probably expected when I paid my money and got in the queue to, you know, to come in. But it, it was a ride that I went with and really enjoyed. It was a, it was a wonderful experience. And where does that win rank upon your, your memories of visiting Norwich City and, and working and commentating on Norwich City? Obviously, as you say, it was a result that you probably didn't expect. Some Norwich fans were, you know, may have been a bit more hopeful, but where does that rank on your visits to Cow Road? I never rank or rate stuff. It, I, I, I repeat, I think football belongs in its moment and I think you treasure that moment. I think you cannot compare, you can't compare Tim Krul with Brian Gunn. You can't compare um, Timu with Chris Sutton. You can't, they're, they're, they're played at different times. I mean, you certainly can't compare um, Brian Gunn with Timu. I mean, you know, there are different different players have, have different values in the different areas of the field that they play. But it's, it's how you affect the game at that, at that moment in your circumstances. And I mean, if we go back to 93, it, it was a shock for Norwich City to win in Munich, but they were, they were third in the Premier League the season before and actually in a very strong position until the last couple of months of the season. They had started the new season really well. They had big wins away from home, one at Chelsea, one at Everton, you know, one at Leeds. I mean, this was a proper, this was one of the best four or five teams in England without any, you know, by any standards, this was one of the best. Well, you know, when Daniel's team came up last year, I, I, there was a wonderful quote from Roy Hodgson on Match of the Day of the Weekend, I don't know if you saw it, and he said, people keep going on about you know, uh, Crystal Palace, West Bromwich Albion, whoever haven't haven't won for ten games. Says, of course, we haven't won for ten. <laughs> We're in the Premier League. You know, I mean, but you know, by any measure uh, of a sort of financial clout, Premier League experience, Norwich shouldn't have won a single game last season. They were always playing against a team which had an advantage at kickoff of, of some kind. So. It, it's a different era, and and those players are playing in different circumstances. You know, Timu went off like a, a house on fire, and, and the Premier League had never seen him. I guess, uh, you know, Premier League defenders were, and you know, they got used to him, and it became more difficult. He was carrying an injury during a lot of the season too, which um, certainly didn't help. I think he got injured in that game, didn't he? Isn't that where he, he, he hurt his toe? Um, so it, you can't you can't compare that team with with that team from 20 30 years ago and, you, and so you can't really compare the moments and um i was i was inside carrow road when justin scored his goal against liverpool the the diving goalkeeper was what sadly uh, has only left us in the last few months one of my very very closest friends in football ray clemens and it went in right by the post never mind the surprise element that suddenly turned around and clapped at this volley but it went between ray's fingertips and the post and it, it was stunning, and it's a stunning piece of action to watch even today. If you, you know, if you if you look it up on your favourite um, search engine, um, but you know, Liverpool did score five that day. I mean, it, you know, it, so is that memory better or or, or worse than, than than you know beating Manchester City as as you did at the start of last season? You can't compare them. Just enjoy them when they happen. Uh, I guess one of the most challenging 
moments for you. Uh, and it was a, a Norwich City game that you were commenta- commentating on was uh, the FA Cup semi-final when we played Everton. And of course, the other semi-final was Hillsborough. And Yeah, I mean, um, that's... Uh... I mean, that's a day that I uh, I find difficult to talk about. And I was 100 miles away from Sheffield. I was in Brussels um, in, in uh, the Champions League final in 85. And um, I saw uh, I saw dead bodies for the, well, the only time in my life, first and only time in my life. And, um, and I was counting them. You know, that became my part of the job that night. I went to commentate on a football match and finished up counting uh, corpses piled up one on top of another. And, um, and having to try to broadcast for my local radio station about, um, you know, trying to trying to sort of work out what it was I was seeing and what, what I was experiencing. And um, in, a, in a strange sort of way, I, I, I grew very close to the Hillsborough crisis sort of afterwards because I, I actually knew two people who didn't come home that day. And Merseyside was a very small place in the week's following Hillsborough, it's extraordinary how many people knew people that had died there. Um, and as the head of the local radio station, I had to, to sort of deal with the, the aftermath. But on the, the actual Saturday afternoon, um, we commentated on the, the, the Norwich City semi-final against Everton because the other one was had a bigger billing. And so BBC National Radio were going to cover that. So we, we chose the other one. And um, I suppose about 20 minutes into the game, you know, I was supposed to be getting score flashes from, from the other match, keeping people in touch. We actually had a reporter, a guy called Bill Arthur, who did quite a lot of rugby league in later years, was our reporter at Hillsborough that day. And um, I was supposed to queue him in from time to time. And then, you know, we heard that, that there had been a crowd disturbance. In, in my heart, I feared it had been something very similar to what I'd seen in Brussels, which was... A, uh, totally different. It was an act of hooliganism, really, what happened in Brussels. Hillsborough wasn't. Hillsborough's thought of the innocence was awful. And um, they they took a, a voice report from Bill, I don't know, probably about 3.15, and there was a suspicion straight away that in his, in his voice you could hear that there may be fatalities. And then the presenter said, well, you know, we can go back and pick up commentary on Everton versus Norwich City. And I actually said, no, we can't. I'm sorry. Um, we, we, you know, we need to concentrate our attentions on what's happening. If, uh, you know, if there have been fatalities, then, um, you know, this is a moment to be commentating. And you know what? I think we actually, once the first deaths were confirmed, I think we actually played music. I mean, I... It, it seems a really, really weird, antiquated, rather quaint sort of tradition in British broadcasting. But once upon a time, when something truly tragic happened, and I don't use the word tragedy in, when a goalkeeper lets it go through their legs, because that's not a tragedy or, or a disaster. You know, people, people perish in tragedies and disasters. So when something truly tragic happens, they kind of used to play somber music. It was, it was all kind of a bit Soviet, really. Um, and I think we kind of started to play music and then take reports from time to time. I think we did take, I gave reports from Goodison, from, uh, from Villa Park, um, but we stopped doing the commentary. Um, which interestingly, um, I did the commentary of the, the, the 85 Champions League final, European Cup final. I did commentate on the game and I'd actually been counting the bodies. So I knew people had died, 
Um, but I don't know whether that changed things, whether whether there was better sort of air, uh, editorial air for respect in 89 than there'd been in 85. Um, but no, we, we didn't continue with the commentary. We, uh, we concentrated our attentions, obviously, on on the unfolding disaster at, uh, at Sheffield. So, I mean, it must have been a really weird feeling for your guys, because I remember driving back up the motorway as it was yesterday and just listening to the reports. And uh, I guess, you know, it's one thing losing a semi-final um, to a single goal, but, you, you know, it's quickly put in perspective when I guess you're listening to radio reports of tens and scores of people dying at a football match. That must have taken some time to, to get over, really, and to, to refocus your mind back on football, because, as you say, a tragedy and a disaster like that does put football into perspective, really, doesn't it? Yeah, the, the, uh, I would say about the Tuesday, um, Anfield, you, you probably, you, you may just be old enough to remember that Anfield became a kind of shrine, um, that the pitch was decorated with with floral tributes to those that had passed. What wasn't so public was that the club actually opened their doors to the families. And, um, you know, we've heard a lot from the Hillsborough families um, in the ensuing years, but they were obviously bound by this tragedy and they all came together very quickly because the club invited them in, into the, actually there's an old players lounge at, at Anfield and that was sort of turned into a, a kind of an emergency counseling area and, and, the, and the families came in there and I guess sort of civic leaders and trained people and a lot of the players used to gather in there and just sit with them. And um, I was in the, the press pack. We waited in the old um, main stand car park at Anfield for announcements each day. And so I spent quite a lot of time just waiting outside there in the spring sunshine. And uh, I think probably about the Tuesday, I got a message from one of the stewards saying, um, uh, Kenny wants to see him. Obviously, I had a good relationship with Kenny. Kenny was the man. Kenny, Sir Kenneth is, was the manager. And uh, as I walked into the reception area that I knew so well at Anfield, he was standing there looking really stern. I thought, oh, God, what have I done? Have I said something? And he said, uh, Ian Whelan? I've just said it like that. And I said, Ian Whelan? And he said, um, the family are asking for you. You showed him around the radio station a couple of weeks ago. Ian was 16. And he wanted to be a football commentator. And he went to support his football team in Sheffield at 16 years of age. And he never came home. And, um, uh, yeah, Kenny led me into the um, into the players' lounge. And I sat down. Um, Wilf and Doris, Kerry's sister. Uh, I'd like to say I'm still in touch with them. I've been in touch with them for years afterwards. I'm not anymore. But, um, uh, yeah, they wanted to talk to me. And... Um, Ian's nickname was Ronnie, because of Ronnie Whelan, the, the Liverpool player. They, that was just his nickname. And I could see Ronnie and his wife, Elaine, counselling another family. And I actually brought them over. And at that moment, I just looked at the scene of these, you know, spoiled young 25, 26-year-old. They probably weren't millionaires in those days, but, um, you know, wealthy young men, spoiled young men, really talented, brilliant young men, but not a second of training or preparation to counsel bereaved families who idolised, you know, my my son idolised you. He His nickname was you and he died at 17. What the, what, I mean, you know, I think I've written in the book WTF. What, 
you know what i mean uh, and yet every day these guys went in i think kenny and marina went to nearly every funeral uh it was just i mean it was it, it was just and i started to go in and see the wheelings each day and then i was in there and um like after a couple of days and uh, a woman of my age young woman of my age um who I used to chat up in a nightclub in Birkenhead, was there, Karen, Karen Chapman. So Karen, what are you doing here, my dad? <laughs> WTF, I mean, what, what, I'm, yeah, what do I, so big hug, and be, uh, oh, we're all totally unprepared to, to deal with the, and I did a phone in the, the next morning. I, I drove back from Birmingham and, and I, I didn't have a mobile phone in 1989. So when I got in the house, um, I, there was a phone call message from my boss, who was actually one of my best friends at the radio station. And he said, you're in tomorrow morning. Um, we're doing a phone in at eight. And I said to him, no, I'm not coming in, Tony. And uh, he said, no, you're in. He said, you're my sports editor. You're in. You're, you're hosting the phone in. And I said, they've done it again. You know, um, I thought they, you know, the initial stories were that they'd broken down the gates and trampled their own. Um, which we now know, of course, was a lie. Not, not only was it not true, it was a lie that was fed to us. Um, and I just said, they've done it again. And he said, well, you're in. So I arrived at our studios about 7.15 on the Sunday morning. And I, there's like a glass doors and a few steps up into the reception area. And there was a guy standing there. I've never seen him before or since. And he was holding up his ticket. You know, the perforation that they tear when you go through he was holding up his complete ticket. And he said, they just opened the doors, Clive. He said, they just opened the doors. And, you know, 15 minutes into that phone in, the Taylor report was written. That everybody who came on had the same story um, because they had a true story. And it took 20 pigging years for anybody to listen to them. I mean, it, it, it is just, it, it, I mean, I... I'm so, I'm sorry, but I am so heavily involved. I'm so glad I wasn't there um, because I'd have been totally helpless and useless. But in the aftermath of it, I have been able to get sort of, I, I have had some involvement with, you know, with like Andy Burnham and Margaret Aspinall and the families and stuff. And um, uh, and I, I'm sure from a distance, you know, from East Anglia or from, the West Country or from Scotland, there, there must have been times when the Hillsborough family and, and people must thought, roll their eyes and, oh, you know, what, what, well, now we know what, the, what they were fighting for, just to get the damn truth out. And the damn truth was on that phone in on Sunday morning <laughs> at 8.15. They opened the gates. They, they'd open the gates and let them in. There is so much out there which, as a, as a, commentator, a reporter, yourselves, a journalist, you, you have to try to deal with and you have to try to process the information and you have to try to present a fair picture to the people who, who are dependent upon you for the, version, for the correct version of the truth. And in the case of football, it's always going to be people with this extraordinary emotional investment. So even though we don't have the same responsibility as somebody who's in Myanmar at the moment or somebody who, you know, who's dealing with some terrible human crisis in Yemen or, or whatever. Of course, we're just football reporters, commenters. We, actually, in a strange sort of way, what happens to Norwich City 
next time they play is nearly as important to Norwich City fans as just about anything else in the world. So you do have a responsibility to try to get it right. And that's where the commentary and all that preparation, all that thought you give to watch the story here, uh, you know, that's where the, the I, that's why I take the job seriously. It's not, it doesn't save lives. It's not that important, except it is important to the people who are watching it at the time. Just want to touch on what you spoke about earlier. So obviously you're working with TalkSport a lot now. You were ITV's senior football commentator for more than 20 years. And I know you've spoken very honestly and openly. You released that tweet video where you talked about the sort of situation surrounding it. But your role has changed with ITV. Just tell us kind of how that came about. It must have been a, a difficult time for you. Yeah, I mean, difficult is relative. And I think difficult was particularly relative at the time that I was told, which is in June, uh, when we were all in lockdown. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm, the rest of my life is fantastic. Um, you know, I'm very lucky in, in so many different ways. Uh, and I, what does experience give you? It gives you a few things, but it gives you a bit of perspective. And um, yeah, I was pretty down for a while because I didn't see it coming. And because whatever anybody says, oh, you're better than well, whatever, whatever. It, it, somebody in authority, somebody who you respect saying to you, you're no longer the best person to do this. And um, that, you know, that, that, that's, that's difficult in any kind of sphere. We found somebody who we think is better than you. And um, so that, that, you know, that, takes a little bit of absorbing and um uh yeah i mean it's not it's 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 certainly not the end of the world sam's a good commentator uh, he's a different kind of commentator to me so that's um a sad thing important i've got plenty of other work as it as it's turned out um you know it's it, i've at least i've got the freedom then to go and work for other companies i will be working for itv on the Euros, uh, if, if they happen this summer, um, uh, uh, you know, on the, this is like the number two commentator, so that, you know, there'll still be plenty of good games for me. I think I can, I, I still want to do the job as much as ever. I think you, you don't know me, but I think you've probably got a sense of um, my passion for communication, good communication, which, you know, I can, I can use in other ways. I can, I say I mentor some young broadcasters and um, do quite a lot of work. I, I mentor six um, media undergraduates every year, and that my, my little family has swollen to about 106 during the lockdowns. It seems to have taken on <laughs> a lot more. Sounds like you've got an incredible gratitude for the the position that you've held and continue to hold, um, and and you you wouldn't change a thing. Wouldn't change a thing about it. Oh no no. No, well, you can't anyway. <laughs> I, 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 I actually read in the book, you know, I, I kind of wanted to scream and shout when uh, when I got that phone, well, it was a Zoom call last June. But I, I, I just, all I wanted was my job back. I, I didn't I didn't want them to take the job off me. So they were going to do that anyway. So there's no point in me getting, um, yeah, there's no point in me. The, the, the video that you mentioned, um, which you know went viral which the, the the issue the only issue that i had since we're talking about the detail of that week was that um i got a, i got a lot of nice sort of things people said to me about you know it's it's in just whatever whatever it's a matter of opinion but i got a call 
from somebody um, who was the producer of another separate kind of gig that I was doing, which was a bit of TV. And he said, look, uh, I'm sorry, I've got to ask you, it was a charity, it's, well, it's Soccer Aid, UNICEF. And he said, I've got to ask you, um, have you done anything? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, am I going to read something about you? Uh, and I said, no. And he said, I mean, obviously, we're a charity and children and everything. And, and that was when it really struck me. I suppose he actually said to me a few days later, it was a kind of a compliment. We couldn't believe they'd take the job off you unless you had done something or you're ill. You know, it, that was the other thing he asked me. He said, are you OK? And I said, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. Um, so the reason I did the video was to make it clear that, A, I wasn't... <laughs> You know, you can't laugh about being terminally ill, but I wasn't terminally ill and I hadn't done something. I wasn't, you know, about to face police charges over something. So, you know, people jumping to conclusions about us, you know, what, what we see when, when we're allowed inside track, when we're allowed close to it and what people don't see and the conclusions they jump to. And um, he felt as if he had to ask. And so I felt it was important at that point to put out, look, I think I said in the video, losing the job fine i'm not happy about it but it's somebody's opinion and they can do that that's not a problem um but they haven't done it because i've done anything wrong or because i'm ill and uh, that, and that was the uh, the message of the video really yeah it had millions of views didn't it as you say it went absolutely viral and it must have been quite emotional for you to see all the support you got to know how many people you've touched and you know you've for years you've been a voice in people's living rooms yeah yeah, but, you know, that, again, is the, the nature of social media, that if you dare to look at the messages, you, you know, there they are on the page. You go, oh, you're great, fantastic, you're an absolute world, oh, what? that's that one that jumps out at you. And uh, it, it might only be one in 100, it might be 99 in 100 that hate you. Um, but it's that one that, I oh, have had this coming to you, you're over the top, you're too old, you know, you're whatever, whatever, oh, fine, okay. But they hurt. They, they do hurt. And so just imagine how much it hurts when, you know, that, that kind of judgment is being made. I mean, there the, the were a, there the were, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was lucky. There were there weren't many, but there were one or two saying, for goodness sake, man, you're, you're 60 something, you know, get out of here. You, you, um, you're too old. Let somebody else in. And I, you know, I, I can, I think, make a good argument against that because, I think um, experience is important. I think how you use your experiences is important. I think staying current is an attitude of mind. Um, as long as you can see and you can move your legs, um, I don't think it really matters how old you are as long as you don't act your age. You know, if, if, you, if you start to become one of those crusty old blokes who thinks that nothing's any good anymore and only the music that was made in the 70s is worth listening to and, uh, you know, <laughs> all that sort of, you know, let, bring back the tackle from behind and muddy pictures. If you were of that mind, then sure, yeah, get out of here because it's changed. But if you're not of that mind, and I'm not of that mind, I like, you know, I say we've got four four children in their mid to late 20s. They're, they're amongst my best friends in the world. I mean, don't tell me I can't relate to them. You know, I, I've got to relate to them. They're, they're, it's my responsibility. My parental is one of the great loves of my life to to interact with them and 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 get off on what they're getting off. So for you, you'd think I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing 
until I decide that, or someone else decides that I'm not going to be able to do this anymore, I guess. You, you don't yeah, think I hope I'm, I'm going to... I hope, I hope I'm able to recognise when I can't do it. I think there have been some very, very fine and famous broadcasters who've been allowed to go on a little bit longer than maybe they should have done. I think it's difficult to make that judgment. And we, we, we like familiarity. It's strange, really, because, um, you know, all this sort of um, appetite to make changes and continually freshen up um, media platforms and, and bring young broadcasters forward and so on and so forth. Actually, you know, people do kind of quite like familiarity. They do kind of feel safe with the same sort of newsreader, the same sort of presenter, the same, you know, they, they come to trust. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I often get asked about great, great broadcasters and great, great broadcast journalists. And I mean, I don't know how old Attenborough is, but I mean, young people love David Attenborough. I mean, they, yeah, I mean, the, the connection between what he sees as the, the, you know, the perils of the planet and what younger people who've got to try to put it right, it's, it's, it's very natural, but it's very strong. It's very, very tight. And um, so as long as the, you know, as long as you are able to broadcast and able, and, and maybe there might come a time when, I'm just not as sharp as I used to be, and I can't call the big games anymore. And I am maybe getting stuff wrong, you know, just ident identifications of players. You know, maybe my eyes will start to fade to that point. Um, but I mean, I heard, you know, I, I felt I really felt from, but I heard, I'm sure you heard it, one of the young commentators on board last week and get a, a you know, a goal scorer hopelessly wrong in a big game in Manchester City um, mm. game. And, um, you know, it can happen to any of us. It's not. So as long as I think I can do it and the people that are employing me think I can do it. And I guess you, you're certainly going to get feedback from your audience <laughs> the day you can't do it anymore. You'll get to be told pretty quickly yeah. in the modern era. Um, so as, yeah, as long as I feel as if I can still do it and I've still got the same appetite to want to do it. But it maybe I'll have to do other things. Maybe I'll have maybe I won't be the play by play commentator anymore. Maybe a little bit of. Um, helping younger broadcasters, um, you know, the kind of stuff that we're talking about, maybe a podcast of some kind. I say I've got a, one book out now and the publishers want me to write again. So maybe maybe you'll find me doing other things, but I want to keep this, um, this old brain active if I possibly can. Clive, you, you talk there about bloopers and, and I watched that game and, and actually saw on social media, the commentator got so much stick for... Yeah wrongly obviously identifying that the wrong goal scorer in that game but have you I have to ask have you had any kind of similar bloopers and how do you get over them well I do yeah of course I make mistakes every game I do um and sometimes I, try, I always try to listen back to every game um I did a talk sport game on Saturday and I've listened to most of it back already I haven't quite got through it all yet what I tend to do with a radio game is listen to it in segments because I think a lot of people dip in and out of radio commentaries. So I think it's always quite an interesting exercise. There's nothing worse than turning on a radio commentary and the commentator not telling the score uh, for 10 minutes. Uh, so I actually, when I analyze the radio games, I tend to want to listen to them in 10 minute segments and come fresh to, fresh to it again and see how long it is before I've given the score or brought people up to date. So yeah, but I hear mistakes that I make. I, I, um, when I watched the highlights back of the Everton Newcastle game, the TV highlights, there was something I'd got 
a bit wrong. I can't remember what it was. But yeah, you're going to make them all the time. I think um, how you deal with the mistake when it's in your mind and you know, you know you've done it, it's a little bit like a footballer in that sense. How you put it out of your mind, a goalkeeper makes an error and they, you know, they can't come off got to carry on and save the next one um that comes in but but i just want to touch on norwich because i'm interested to know what is the kind of overall view from commentators and and football journalists at the minute of of the work that's being done at norwich and where we are you're a modern miracle really you know because you know life's not meant to be fair and and football's certainly not meant to be fair i mean um it's super bowl um next weekend and in in that very kind of controlled environment of, of so many nfl franchises they they can have a draft and they can kind of keep a, a level of i think you know i think they have salary caps and how much money different owners can spend and you know football sort of started to introduce something like that. i don't know how how football fair play is really um pleased but there's just absolutely there's no comparison you, you you are the corner shop to the to the mega store in in terms of resources but w- what you have which so many other clubs don't have is um a, a local and regional identity um it's not just a, a one city club um or one club city i should say it's almost a one club county isn't it really it's um uh, and the, you know, the success or otherwise of the football club means so much to not not just the morale of and 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 sort of everyday happiness of people in and around the Norwich area, but to the identity of the area. It's, I, I mean, I'm sure we've all had that um, situation where we go away on a holiday, and um, you, you know, people in some far-flung nations say where are you from you say a uk yeah whereabouts from london no i'm from a place called norwich ah norwich city you know they, that, that's it's going to be the first thing that they know and it's the same is true of bury you know where i come from people you know they remember the results they remember the football club and that's such an important and that's why it's so fantastic um that's uh Mr. WJ and Mrs. WJ is still, you know, still in charge of the show. It is. It keeps that 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 identity with with the town and the and the, the ground so close to the centre of the city. I mean, I um, tend to park. There's a I can't remember which hotel it is. One of the city centre hotels. They do a kind of park and uh, parking advanced parking scheme, and I just walk down there by the river to you know, to the stadium. Um, and it's, it is, it's almost, well, it's not quite unique because there are, I suppose, maybe another 15 or 20 similar football clubs still, but there are so many football clubs that have kind of lost into some international identity or part of some big city where there are two or three or several football clubs. You've got, you've got that. And to, to remain competitive, um, in the environment in which you're trying to operate, either the Premier League or always aspiring to be in the top 20 teams in, in the nation and regularly reaching that. OK, there's a yo-yo existence, which is an inevitability. It goes back to what Roy Hodgson said 
our match of the day. You know, don't judge us by the games we'd lose. We should lose every game. It's the games we win that make us extraordinary. And then, you know, to produce so much talent for clubs with deeper pockets. I mean, I think it's just a football club to be proud of. As I say, I think Michael and Delia keep it, keep it that. It's so different from, you know, Manchester United and Chelsea and Manchester City. It's it's just so different, and and yet you could you're having to compete by the same rules over the same ninety minutes on the same field as as these international conglomerates of, with all the you know the the power that comes from their financial clout. And it's it. I repeat, it's a modern miracle. It's wonderful if you can find a way to be successful in your area, which is in the top thirty teams in uh, in England, uh, then I think that that miracle continues because just to be, you know, in that elite, and if you, if you can become one of the top 15, great. But, um, you know, being amongst, well, at the moment, the top 21 teams in the country is, is fantastic because you're doing it in your way, you know, almost on your terms. And that, that's probably the phrase I'm looking for. In a way, I feel as if Norwich City are kind of do, playing football and running football club on their terms. How, and there aren't many people who get to choose how they are in football, you know, what kind of football club they are. You know, um, th there's been a general, fairly good level of stability in terms of personnel in the football club for some time now. OK, you know, managers come and go. That's, that's just the way of, of the world. But um, I get the impression that the, the foundations are good. I think financially the club's okay, you know, but running at the level that it is. And yeah, I, 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 th I don't think there's a single person outside of Suffolk who wouldn't love to see Norwich City back in the Premier League next season. Exactly. Our long may that continue. Thank you so much, Clive. It has been an absolute pleasure having you join us on the podcast. Really thoroughly enjoyed all of your stories. I mean, we could have been here all day, quite frankly, but thank you so much for that, Clive. <laughs> well, the rest of it's in the book. It's out in May. <laughs> Thanks, Clive. Okay, really appreciate care, your time. Okay, we'll see you next season. Thank, Thank you. Wow, so many tales and memories there from Clive. I think we probably could have been sitting here all day, couldn't we, Dan? He certainly has a story to tell. He really has seen and done it all, and the passion for the game still burns as bright within him, definitely. Yeah, it really does. So make sure you subscribe if you enjoyed that podcast and want more like that. We're on Spotify, Apple and YouTube. Just search All In Yellow. Thank you for listening this time around and we'll see you next time. <laughs>